Anybody checked on HubSpot stock lately? I own a tiny bit of it and can tell you that it's up more than 5x since their IPO five years ago. Could you imagine being the man responsible for building that revenue engine? Today, you get to hear from just that person, Mark Roberge. Today, Mark both invests in and teaches the next generation of tech companies how to build off the lessons he learned in the trenches. Get your notebook ready and give it a listen. Product training should be a part of your sales training, but it's a minority component. I think the biggest part of sales training should be buyer training. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Simon Sinek, who said there is no decision that we can make that doesn't come with some sort of balance or sacrifice. It took me a year and a half to get today's guest on the show, but I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Harvard Business School senior lecturer, Mark Roberge. Mark was the third employee at HubSpot, where he started doing sales part-time and ultimately took the company from $0 in revenue to more than $100 million and an IPO as Chief Revenue Officer. After repeatedly being asked how he did it, Mark wrote the best-selling book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, that has more than 125 five-star reviews on Amazon. Strap in. This is going to be a good one. Make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 77. But now, let's get to the conversation where Mark talks about how he accidentally stumbled into sales, having been a former product engineer. I guess just I feel very blessed to have been given an amazing experience in the last 10 years, one that I sort of stumbled upon accidentally and, um, you know, evolved from a, a former product engineer guy who thought that sales didn't matter and product wins <laughs> to a guy who saw the patterns of how important sales and marketing execution can be to the future of a business. And then having gone through that experience, questioning why it's not taught in school. <laughs> and so I sure. think that just was like, well, I sort of have to do this and it will be fun and it might make an, an important mark on the world is um, you know, wrote the book, had the experience, and then Harvard Business School, who, you know, most business schools look to for curriculum development, knocks on the door and says, hey, would you come teach this here? Yeah, you know, it just seems like all the stars were aligned. So these days, that's what gets me up at, you know, in the morning is I get to work with extraordinarily bright students who are super motivated to make a mark in entrepreneurship. I get to teach them how to sell and I get to codify the function to some degree in one of the best schools in the world that, that you know, hopefully will impact not just that school's curriculum, but all the business schools across the world. I love that. And one of the things that I'm kind of honored by and, and, and humbled at the same time is that, you know, I first met you in person uh, back in 2010. I brought you out to Indianapolis to keynote 
the Masters of Business Online conference. And not only did you absolutely kill that, I think you scored higher than any speaker I had in the entire 10 years I ran the event, but just to be able to have that connection with you and then watch the stuff that you were doing from afar uh, was just absolutely in- incredible to see the growth that you had all the way through the IPO. And again, just following the research and stuff that you're doing now, it's been uh, fun for me. I think uh, there, there's not many regrets that I have in my career, but I think one of them for sure is that I didn't find some way to get out to Boston and work with you or for you uh, during that time frame. Well, thanks, Jim. I remember that speech very well. In fact, I'm surprised it was the highest score because I was amazed by the Indianapolis culture, specifically their breadth and depth of knowledge on analytics and how to run a business, uh, use it in business. And I think it's just because of some of the great companies that have come out of there that have kind of you know, worked in that field. And I'd been traveling around the country doing those same, same speeches and wowing people. And I felt like when I got to Indianapolis, it was like, yeah, we kind of know that. Uh, so <laughs> it, was, it, was, uh, it was cool to go there and, and see that. Well, I do appreciate it. We're, we, we are here in Indianapolis trying to you know, call ourselves the marketing technology capital world because of all of that uh, investment we've had in the technology and, and obviously the marketing stack analytics, as you mentioned. So Mark, in this show, you know, we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that has led to that success that you're talking about. So I know you're not selling directly today, but go on a little bit further and tell me what you're doing on a daily basis today at Harvard. I'm a full-time faculty member there. They don't, the students call me professor or call us professors. I don't really <laughs> like them too, but they call us senior lecturers because we're not on the typical like tenure track and doing research. So Harvard's great at bringing, um, uh, practitioners in, in incorporating them into the uh, culture, largely to make sure that the work that they do, whether it's research or what's done in the classroom, is highly relevant to what's happening in the business world. And so that's the role that I play. I teach three classes there. Uh, one that I started with uh, with another faculty member there, uh, Frank Cespedes. We started the Entrepreneur Sales and Marketing course, which has been a lot of fun. We run two 80-student sessions of that in the fall. And over 200 students sign up every year. So we've been oversubscribed, which has been a lot of fun to see the appetite and curiosity in, in sales uh, from the student body. And then I teach two other courses in entrepreneurial management. Um, outside of that, um, the great thing too about that, that journey is it does leave some room and encourages continual involvement in, in the operating world. Usually every quarter, I'm working with a different startup really intensely as almost like you know, looking at their go-to-market, looking at unplugging some of their challenges, which has been fun to see so many different contexts and start to see the patterns, but appreciate what's different. And then I, I also uh, work with uh, BCG uh, as a senior advisor and, and work with, you know, a dozen or so very large companies, often in the Fortune 100 space and, and some of their go-to-market challenges. So it's just been, uh, you know, I feel really blessed to be able to take a step back and and see all these different patterns and See if I can codify it to, to help put people out. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into to each of these that we've talked about. And I've got a full page of questions that I want to ask that I know the audience is looking forward to as well. The research you've, you've been doing is around that data and science piece of, of sales, as opposed to just the art of it. But before we do any of that, Mark, take me way back. How did you even get started in the sales world? Completely serendipitously and accidentally. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, as I've, I've mentioned in the past, a lot of people probably are aware I studied engineering undergrad, started my career writing code, um, ended up at MIT for business school because I was always intrigued by quant. And so that was really my, the foundation of my career, you know, very process oriented, very scientific, very data driven. I met Darmesh, one of the co-founders of uh, HubSpot at, um, at MIT. He invested in a startup that I was uh, starting at the time and ran 
for my second year of business school and year after. And as part of that investment, asked that I help him with his idea, HubSpot, <laughs> when he was just him. I helped him out one day a week and very quickly into that process, he had already had deep dialogues with Brian Halligan, who was also an MIT grad and venture capitalist at the time, uh, who engaged full time and said, hey, Mark, I'm glad we have you for one day a week, but I'd like you to just sell. And so that's how I ended up in sales is uh, I was like, Halligan, I'll do whatever you want. Let me go sell. And for that year, while I was doing my startup, I, I helped them out one day a week. And between all of us, probably we brought in like 40 customers to play around with, with this new idea. And um, I couldn't, unfortunately, couldn't get Series A funding for my startup and um, had to go find a, a way to support my family. Um, and the Halligan didn't know that. And he said, we're about to raise money and we'd love you to come in here and try to build the sales team out. And that's how I ended up. It was sort of like, at the time I was just like, this will be great. I can go over there for three or four months and collect a real salary and, and get my feet under me and figure out what to do from there. And 10 years later, we're standing up on the, on the New York stock exchange, ringing the bell. <laughs> You know, it's simply incredible just to think about everything that you just said. You were essentially doing part-time sales work uh, for this brand new idea that Dharmesh had. And then as they solidified it, you kind of came on board. And as you said, over the next 10 years, you, you get to the point where you're, you're ringing the bell uh, at the stock market. It's simply, simply incredible. And, and even more so, you, you, you had the notion in your head that you were going to do like for three or four months and you know get draw a little bit of a salary, but then you're going to go do your own thing again. You had a perception at this point that sales wasn't really even like a, I don't even want to say like a profound profession. Talk about that. It evolved from a 22-year-old engineer who was absolutely convinced that the best product won to an involvement through those years leading up to business school where I was like, holy cow, as I look at the companies that end up winning and go public and dominate market share, their products often suck. <laughs> it's like, how is that happening? And you look under the hood and you're like, they're just killing it from a sales and marketing perspective. And, and then so by the time I got to this point in my career, I actually was intrigued. I didn't want to do product anymore and I wanted to do sales and marketing. I was probably leaning more toward marketing, but sales was an option. And then I ended up in that spot. And I think, that's, I th I think a lot of young engineers have that perspective. I do think it shifted a bit. I think most companies that won 20 years ago had the best sales and marketing team. I think it's, it's um, blending a bit more. It's harder to survive these days with a bad product because of like freemium and SaaS and the consumerization of software. But still, if you look at the companies that are winning, um, sales and marketing execution plays a big part of it. And even great product-oriented people like Peter Thiel and, you know, um, uh, ben Horowitz and David Cancel, who you're about to interview, admit that like they'd actually rather have a killer go-to-market strategy and mediocre, you know, product team than a killer product team and a bad go-to-market. You know, so that that's coming from product people. It says something. Yeah, it is fascinating to hear that, and because I, I've seen it as well in several of the software companies that I've sold for, we didn't necessarily have the great product, but we built sales systems and sales processes that allowed us to support that while being able to invest in in, in the product itself. But you're right, as we've seen this consumerization of technology, when people have an iPhone in their hand and they see how simple and beautiful and elegant those consumer apps are, they kind of just expect that now of the products they're going to use on the business side, or, or they don't expect any parity between them. And so if you aren't delivering that today, that's kind of like table stakes, but it still does have that, that play into sales. 
Mark, talk to me about those early days uh, at, at HapSpot starting to to stand up their whole sales org, their whole sales process, those 40 customers. What were some of the challenges that you were facing, again, in those earliest days? I would say the biggest challenge was we were evangelizing not just a new product, but a new English word <laughs> called inbound marketing, which is a completely new way and foreign way for people to generate demand and trying to shift their behavior thinking from, what do you mean marketing? I, I just spent $1,000 on a Yellow Pages ad and that's my marketing to no, you actually have to get off your chair and start blogging and stuff and the Yellow Pages thing is dying. So you're trying to evangelize a whole new behavior, which many startups uh, um, try to do. But do that within a very low CAC because we're, telling us, we're selling to small businesses. So that was one of the biggest challenges of just the overall economics of the business is it's one thing to try to go out and evangelize a new way of doing business when you're closing million-dollar deals and you can afford to spend $300,000 to get it. It's another mm -hmm. thing to go try to do it with plumbers who don't have a reputation for being the most sophisticated business or buyer and actually don't have budget. That was the biggest challenge is how do you do that? And fortunately, inbound marketing played a big part in that role <laughs> to allow sure. us to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, you, you did it yourself. Not only did you kind of create that word and then own that word and then sell to that word, but you did it. You actually did all that as well. And I know a lot of your sales reps, you've kind of forced them to become you know, experts in what they did, create their own content to generate their own inbound as well. I, I, I don't know, you know, You've studied a lot of go-to-market strategies now today since you've left, but if you were to go back 10 years and look at the go-to-market of HubSpot, what would you do differently today, knowing what you know now? Would have put a lot more emphasis on generating successful customers and high lifetime value customers as opposed to just revenue. And I think that that's a theme that I think we're still trying to catch up on as a business community. Historically, everyone from investors to CEOs to heads of sales have put a dramatic emphasis on revenue creation and growth as the key measure of a business. And especially in the early stages, I think revenue growth and acquisition needs to come second to customer success creation. You know, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do in sales. We're not necessarily trying to generate revenue, we're trying to find people that we can make successful with the customer value prop that we're pitching. And so that's, that's what I would have done differently is the end of the sales cycle wouldn't have been the signed contract and the check. It would have been that whatever we told that customer, 90 days later, they saw that value. That's interesting. You said that the, the end of the sale or the cycle would not be that signed contract. It's actually the success of that client to make sure you're, you're delivering it. It, it you know, we're, we're talking on a sales podcast right now and I, I'm seeing, I'm envisioning sales reps cringing at that thought. I'm, I'm seeing CEOs cringe at that thought because it's sales and, and sales is all about growth. So how would you tell a CEO or, or a sales rep to shift their thinking? How can you get them to see that your way? I guess when you relate it back to what they're trying to accomplish, you know, it's like, listen, you know, you're talking to a CEO, you want to, you want to grow this thing to a hundred million. You want to, you know, take it public. You want to change the world. You know, lots of times the CEOs are either very revenue, you know, growth focused or they're very like mission oriented. 
In either case, you can't achieve either of those unless you're generating tremendous customer value. <laughs> and so it doesn't, it doesn't take a long time for, I think, the CEO or heads of sales to come around to it. Um, you know, I think usually they're, they're kind of too stuck in their world and they're not sure which fire to put out. And through a brief explanation, it's like, you've got to put this fire out first and you've got to put the, lots of times what happens is they'll find some sort of product market fit and really exploit it and then just kind of use revenue as an excuse that they're succeeding. And at some point it peters out and they're not sure why. And they're trying to just throw a Hail Mary to get back on that train. And you just have to back up and fix the customer success thing. You just, you, I can run an Excel model for you to show that you'll never outsell this, right? So it doesn't take much time there. On the salesperson side, it's tough. Um, that's, a, that's a more challenging discussion. It's like, well, it's hard enough to sell business. That's not my job. It should be the product. It should be the customer success people. But in my experience, most of the customer success issues originate in the sales process. They originate in the types of leads that the salesperson is going after and the expectations that they're setting. And lots of times, yeah, you're right. They don't want to hear it. Um, but you just got to make the tough calls as a business and change the comp plan or establish rules to sell to um, businesses that work. And in my experience, the best salespeople get that. And they actually seek that stuff out, even with the guardrails in place. And they appreciate that they're not going to do very well in their career if half the people they sell don't see value from their products. Those are all your future customers and your future referrals. I want to dive into this. You said most of the customer success issues are created in sales. I completely agree with you. I think that you said the the best salespeople get that from day one. I agree with that. One of the things that I'm telling almost all of my, well, not almost, I'm literally telling all of my clients to do this. Like if you're in sales, you need to go sit in customer service and understand the things that they're talking to your customers about or you know the company's customers about. See what those problems are and then be able to go have that conversation. I know I, I read it somewhere and doing the research for you, but you tell your reps or did tell your reps that they need to truly be able to go walk a mile in their customer's shoes. What do you mean by that? How do they actually do that? Transfer that over there. Where the walk the mile in the shoes advice usually st stems from is what I perceive as a a really important shift in, in selling uh, driven by buyer behavior. And, and where that stems from is, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, as a buyer, you actually had to talk to a salesperson to make a purchase. You had to talk to a salesperson to figure out what the product did, how much it costs, how it compared to the other alternatives out there, and to actually make the purchase. These days, you don't. You can do all of that online. <laughs> you don't have to talk mm -hmm. to a salesperson. and so. That type of selling where all you do is you're good at like, and unfortunately, salespeople really abuse that um, power position. They abused it by manipulating buyers, by requiring buyers to tell them stuff about them before they revealed information and buyers were at their mercy and had to do it. All that's changed. Buyer empowerment is through the roof. They have access to all that data. They can purchase these things without salespeople. They can go around salespeople and talk to customers online. It's just like the whole game has changed. And so if, if you're still running the old sales playbook where you, know, you, you essentially memorize the value props of your product and then deliver a demo to every customer, dude, I can build a website that does that. Like You have no value in the sales ecosystem. And so where sellers need to get to is they need to 
dig deeper into the unique context of that buyer. What's their role? What's their goals? What have they tried? How do they quantify it? What are the implications of not solving it? All the stuff that have been written in the best sales books over the years, but salespeople have gotten away without doing it well and built a career. That's changing. And so we, you have to really be able to get into the buyer's shoes. And the best way to do that from a sales standpoint is just to like live their job. You know, the example I give it for what we did at HubSpot is we had all of our salespeople build a website, create a blog, create a social media following on something they were passionate about. And it taught them all the things that, you know, are the people we ultimately were selling to were going through. And so that's the type of stuff that, that we need to do. And, you know, it helps in your, in your particular question too, is later on, when you are thinking about customer success, you'll be able to relate to what it, what that post sale experience is going to be like. And, and, and can set proper expectations on what kind of results they can expect and what's it going to take to achieve those results. And, and that's when customer success will, will, will do well. I feel like having that context as the as the seller is just, it's critical. I mean, today it almost seems like it's table stakes, but what I'm seeing is all these companies are, are bringing, I'll call them green reps in, junior reps in, teaching them product features and benefits and saying, you know, here's your quota, good luck. And then wondering why they don't have, they're not having success. Uh, any, any thoughts to that? Absolutely. I mean, product training should be a part of your sales training, but it's a minority component. I think the biggest part of sales training should be buyer training. You know, what, what does their life look like? What, what is the buyer journey? Let's look at buying the product from their lens. Like what, what are they thinking about before they even know what we have? What are the big problems on their, on their plate? How are they thinking about solving them? What are the different categories they consider? How are, how are we positioned relative to that? When they make a decision, is it more on price or flexibility? And then teaching reps how to uncover that perspective and really support the buyer during that journey. And so that, that's what the most of, of sales training should be, not about the product. So let's, let's flip that now. So I'm with you. I love that. You talked about being able to have that unique context of the buyer, but then you also talked about not, I guess, running the old school playbook of not revealing anything to the buyer before they get you, they, they tell you everything. Where is that balance, Mark? Because I do need to know some stuff about them to truly position it the correct way for them. I think too often today we think that buyers can do all their own research online. And while I don't disagree that they can, if they knew the right question to ask, they could get the right information. But what happens when their hypothesis of how to solve the problem is wrong and we have to back them up to show them a different world? Don't misinterpret my statements as not getting a lot of information from the buyer before you reveal what you have. That's optimal. It still is. It's just that in the past, we as salespeople like kind of abuse that. And there's other ways to still get into that position in a helpful way. An example would be when you're setting up appointments and generating demand, instead of trying to get people to see a demo of your product, which represents something deep in a buyer journey, that's probably a stage they're not at yet. Instead, um, ask if they'd like to get an assessment of their business relative to their peers on whatever your line of business is. Like in, in HubSpot's case, it would be, how are you doing relative to your peers on your visibility online? If you'd like to get a free 30-minute assessment, I'll do that. That positions you really well because it's very clear why I'm going to come in and ask you a bunch of questions and why I would have been a, done a bunch of research on where you stand today. And as a buyer, I know why I'm answering those questions because you're going to generate some value back to me. And so the buyer walks away with some really great value. And as a seller, I know, number one, 
if I'm in a position to help the person and I'll spend more time with them. And number two, exactly how I'm going to help them. And I know exactly how to do that pitch. So don't, don't misinterpret my, my kind of statements around the, the shift in empowerment. It's still best practice to, you know, to earn the right with a buyer, however you do it, to get them to open up to you about their honest issues, their honest goals, and to dive deep into those to fully understand them and then decide, can I help this person or not? And if I can, tell them how in a very customized way to, to, to their story and their context. That to me is, is how you sell. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I know, you know, throughout your, your tenure at, uh, at HubSpot, you know, you hired more than 450 salespeople in that time. I've read the sales acceleration formula. I think that everybody listening to this should absolutely read it. You talk about the traits that you saw in people that were, you knew were going to lead to success. Number one was coachability, but can you talk about some of those patterns or themes that you've seen inside of the best performing reps and how we teach them the stuff that we're talking about today? Yeah, I mean, the five were at HubSpot were coachability, curiosity, prior success, work ethic, and intelligence. And the big footnote on that is I don't think that there's a common answer to what makes a great salesperson. I think that answer is different from business to business, depending on their content, like how, who are they selling to, how complex is the product, like those five traits would change. I do see coachability and curiosity as a very common theme through that. And what was interesting um, about that conclusion was coachability was not even in my criteria when I first devised the criteria uh, at, at HubSpot. You know, it took a couple of years of watching people come in and crush it and watching people come in and not crush it and kind of reflect on what's the pattern here and coachability was it. And so that, that's, a, that's a surprise. I'm not sure why that's the case. I, I don't know. I just, maybe we've just gotten better at like, developing optimal sales playbooks and those folks who are come in and just like want to learn and execute it um, do well. I don't, I don't know why that's the case, but that's the pattern I see, coachability and curiosity across many different, different uh, contexts. That's talking about the patterns then in the reps. I know that in the consulting work that you've done post HubSpot and through your research at, at Harvard, you've also been able to see the inside of all the different go-to-markets of different companies and the patterns that are emerging there, uh, both similar and uh, dissimilar. What what do you see in there? What are the differences in the patterns or, or again, the similarities in the patterns you're seeing in go-to-market strategies of what's working versus what's failing today? That is a very similar answer to the reps is like, <laughs> there's no one optimal go-to-market machine, as I call it. And what, what you, we need to really be aware of is appreciate our context, you know, and in this case, at a much broader level, it's this it's a, the buyer, the product complexity, the competitive landscape, the maturity of the category, the maturity of the product, the maturity of the company, and just customize our machine, our go-to-market machine to that context. And the one that I've been most focused on is how the stage of the business dictates those decisions. So when you're going from zero to a million versus a million to 10 versus 10 to 100 million versus 100 to a billion... What do you need to be worried about from a go-to-market perspective? What are some of the, the hidden issues that you don't usually see that you really have to be thinking about? And I think that that particular piece of the context um, is often overlooked by businesses and, um, and, and, and needs to be worked on. And so that, that's an area that I've been looking at. Talk more about that. Like, what is the, you know, you said that's kind of the weakness, not the weakness, that's the gap that they have. How are you kind of pulling that out of them? And, and, and what does the reveal look like? One framework that I've probably tested against a hundred plus businesses with 
pretty good success is uh, three stages, customer success, then unit economics, and then growth and moat. And so when you first come out as a business, your first goal is to prove predictable customer success. Prove to me that you can put whatever, 10 people, 20 people, 100 people into your sales funnel and make them customers. And 90 days later, 120 days later, 90% of them are like, I love this product. I use it. It it generates the value. Don't ever take away from me. That's the first stage. There's lots of different ways to measure whether you're in there or not. You know, for, for technical products, it can be how often they use the product. You can do NPS against your product. You can over time measure churn rate, whatever. Just prove to me that you can generate customer success. And at that stage, I don't care if it costs you $50,000 to generate a customer that makes $30,000 for you. I don't care. I'm not focused on that right now. I don't care what the comp plan is for your reps. I don't care what your pricing model is. All I care is you put 100 people on your product and 90 of them love it 90 days later. That's really hard to do. And there are some big businesses yeah. like Groupon that never figured that out and, and, and really like destroyed a lot of <laughs> money capitalization. Okay? And then you'd be surprised how many businesses. So figure that out first and then instrument so you never lose sight of it. Then move to unit economics. Now let's talk about, let's get the comp plan right. Let's get the pricing model right. Let's get some of the demand gen stuff right and show me that you can generate a good operating margin, a good gross margin in the world of SaaS, a good LTV to CAC and payback period. And then once you have those two things and you instrument it, let's talk about growing. Let's talk about hiring two reps a month for the next three years. And during that process, let's build a moat around this because there's going to be a lot of copycats coming in. And we better have a vision on how to build a barrier to entry around this. And sometimes the development of that barrier entry is going to come at the expense of our growth rate, but it's worth it. So that, that's the underlying framework and theme that I see um, in, in, in how you go through those, those different revenue and, and growth stages. That's absolutely fantastic, Mark. I had to laugh when you brought up the, the Groupon reference because you know at, at one point when they were scaling, they were the fastest growing company on, on earth in existence ever. And if you look at it today, just they, the attrition rate, of their customers has just been absolutely incredible. No one wants to go back to use them. Yes, it was great for consumers, but it was just a big challenge for them. And so if they would have focused on that customer success before, well, I don't know, you, you laid it out, right? It's customer success, then it's unit economics, and then it's growth. I think that's a, a great framework. And it's a perfect example of how we over-obsess both as executives <laughs> and investors on revenue traction as a measure of success. Imagine if we had looked at Groupon from the currency of customer success. It would have never happened. That's interesting. I almost want to ask you if you're an investor in any of the customer success platforms that are out there, but I won't do it. Uh, But I am going to take a quick break, Mark, so that I can say thank you to my sponsor. But when we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away and sales sooners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Costello is pioneering the way companies build and execute sales playbooks. The platform helps sales reps prepare for calls, ask timely questions, tell relevant stories, and sync insights back to their CRM, all while showing managers and reps the gaps in every single deal so they can work them together to move them forward. With Costello, sales leaders can identify what's working on the front line and replicate success across their entire team. Learn more and see a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. We're back and it's time for the money round. Mark, are you ready for the money round? I am. 
Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Probably the desire to try new things and be open to decisions that weren't planned. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? Having informal discussions with customers, not about my product, but just about their jobs and and issues and learning from that. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose? I hate to lose uh, because I think winning sounds individualist and it means there's a loser, but winning can mean like we all win versus hate to lose. It's a little different than that. What's a bookmark that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Gets a little personal, but the autobiography of a yogi, I've become a little more Buddhist in my day and I like the message that it sends on, on how to live. Sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Mark's suggestion of the autobiography of a yogi for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book. And Mark, I will tell you that in my most recent startup failure, when I lost over a million dollars in venture capital, I also had an experience in Buddhism and going down that path of just really trying to understand the differences of what was happening in my life. So I'm going to have to check that book out myself. So thanks for that. What is currently at the top of your bucket list? Balance holistically in life. You know, I think uh, professional was needed and took a lot out of me the last 10 years. And today I work a lot on the proper balance between my boys and my wife and my broader relationships, my health and my hobbies and my work. What's the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Invest 5% a week in yourself by going out and finding peers from other companies that are doing the same job and getting together with them on a regular basis and taking time to, to grab cups of coffee with people who in their career that are a little bit ahead of you that you can learn from. Mark and I continued our conversation offline talking about the title Chief Revenue Officer and the evolution it's having. He essentially said someone has to be responsible for orchestrating the friction between marketing, sales, and client success. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, successful customers trump revenue. The goal of sales should not be revenue at all cost. It's our job to find people we can make successful through the value prop we're pitching. Rather than focusing solely on the signed contract and the commission check, make sure the customers you close are going to find value in what they bought 90 days later. Number two, buyers don't have to talk to salespeople. 20 to 30 years ago, every buyer had to talk to a salesperson. Today, buyers can watch demos, compare and research alternative products, and even get ballpark pricing online, all before reaching out to you. In the shifting world of buyer empowerment, you have to provide value in every interaction with a prospective customer. Number three, live your buyer's job. What does your prospect's daily job look like? What's their role in the company? What are their goals? How do they quantify that? What happens if they don't achieve it? It's not enough to ask those questions. When looking at things through their lens, you can really dig into what they're thinking before they even look to buy. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at salestuners or shoot me an email, jim at salestuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there.